Thanks, Peter. We got there, uh, Colossians 3. Um, let me add my welcome to Pete's. My name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC, if you are visiting, and we've been working through this little letter of Paul's, uh, which is very thick in practical application in the second half, and we've come to such a passage uh, tonight. So let me pray for us now, ask that God will help us as we um, think about these uh, big building blocks that uh, take up a lot of our lives and um, ask that God would give us wisdom as we think about his word together. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather together freely tonight. We thank you that you are a speaking God, that you have revealed yourself through your word and ultimately in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we do pray tonight that uh, your word which is living and active would um, challenge us afresh that as we think about uh, these important topics that you would give us clarity about what your word says and that you would give us uh, wills that are ready to put your word into action and we ask this for christ's sake amen well many of you will know of tim keller he's a presbyterian pastor of redeemer church in new york uh, has been serving there and is an author of many books. And he wrote one of his many books back in 2011 on the topic of marriage, and it was called The Meaning of Marriage. And he has a quote that goes as follows, in terms of the attitudes of society generally today as a person approaches marriage and thinks about a marriage partner. He writes, Both men and women today want a marriage in which they can receive satisfaction from someone who will simply let them be themselves. They want a spouse who is fun and intellectually stimulating and attractive and with many common interests and in, on top of all of that is supportive of their personal goals and of the way they are living right now. And if your desire for a spouse is like this, then you demand somebody who has almost got everything together, someone very low maintenance. You're searching for that ideal person Never before in history has there been a society filled with so many people with such an idealism about the spouse they are seeking. Well, is he right? Um, he's got another book that he's written about work, and we're going to think about that topic tonight, and argues that there's a similar focus on satisfaction and self-fulfillment that not only characterises our relationships when it comes to marriage, but also as we think about work. So about work, he writes this in his book, Every Good Endeavour. Our contemporary culture magnifies the self-serving nature of sin in every human heart. Our needs are more real than anything else outside us. There is nothing to which we should submit, nothing that may trump our own happiness without our permission. And there is nothing for which we should sacrifice our freedom. Well, that's something of the philosophy and the approach of our age, isn't it? But as we heard the words just read from Colossians 3, that's not the kind of approach that the Apostle Paul takes when he comes to these large topics. What is the Bible's worldview? How is it so different, these instructions on marriage and parenting and work that we're going to consider this evening? Are they more than about self-fulfillment? Well, the big question that I want, to, want us to consider tonight in light of that is this. How are we to live for Christ at home and at work? How are we to live for Christ at home and at work? 
And we're going to answer that with three points as we move through this passage. And the first answer to that question is this. By building selfless marriages. By building selfless marriages. You notice again how Paul starts our passage from verses 18 and 19. He writes, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. It's a much shorter summary on this topic than he gives us in Ephesians 5. Just one sentence on each. But I think the thing that should immediately strike us is how his teaching on marriage here doesn't seem to speak to our need for self-fulfillment. It almost seems diametrically opposed to such an outlook. His focus is all on responsibilities rather than on privileges. You notice the language is not so much about what I'll get out of it, but it's very other-centred. It's about the other person. So let's have a look at this. What is he saying in these two short verses? Firstly, the key instruction to wives in verse 18 is to submit to their husband's leadership in the marriage. Now, our society has a lot of problems with that word submission today. It carries a lot of baggage for people. But let me argue that in the Bible's context, submission is not unthinking obedience to some authority. It's an action by which a person freely gives themselves Entrust themselves to someone who has a responsibility to love them. Submission is a choice. And submission and love are actually related themes. Submission could be seen as a voluntary act of love. And the difference in the way that Paul speaks to husband and wives here, in terms of their relationship to one another, uh, hinges on the idea that the husband is given a responsibility, a certain responsibility for the relationship. A husband's leadership is the responsibility to care for his wife and, if they have children, their family. He's the team leader, if you like, of a group of equals. He is not any more important than any of them. Indeed, he should be focused on them and not selfishly on himself. His chief concern is their good. And so God's blueprint for marriage is that husbands and wives are complementary. We are equal before God, but we have different functions within the marriage relationship. But when we think about this kind of idea, our society today just rejects that generally. It sees the Bible on such a point as very chauvinistic and sexist. It assumes that uh, this is implying that the wife is inferior to the husband, that the Bible is somehow saying the husband is more important in the relationship or Else, submission is linked in people's minds to a very domineering authority. Some people have even argued in the last few years, you know, that this is why there's domestic violence, because, you know, we're, we're allowing somebody to have authority in a relationship. None of those things are what is contained within God's instruction here. Nothing could be further, actually, from God's intention. Notice here, the Bible affirms the equality of men and women at the very point of creation. Genesis 1, verse 27. There's no doubt on that issue. Our problem as we come to this verse is that we define the terms in terms of our own thinking or our own society today. But the Bible always wants to define both the terms submission and love on a parallel relationship that's far more important, that of Christ and his church, his people. So anything we read about the husband and wife is a shadow of this far greater relationship, which is Christ and the church. That's unpacked for us fully in Ephesians 5, but not here. 
But notice that even here in the second part of verse 18, the motivation for a wife to choose to submit to the leadership of her husband within their marriage relationship, it's motivated purely because it's fitting in the Lord. It springs out of her relationship with Christ. These instructions are only for believers. They could not be imposed on a non-believer. They assume that the person has a relationship with God and that is what motivates them to respond according to God's blueprint. And so Christians are called to submit to God, all Christians. That's the primary relationship and that governs our understanding of both submission and love in marriage. Now have a think about the second instruction in verse 19 to husbands. The key instruction to husbands is to love their wives. And unlike the first, our society says, well, that's common sense. Of course, every spouse should love their spouse. Every husband will love his wife. There's not much being asked here, nothing profound. But there is. This is a huge command. The Greek word for love here is not friendship, philio. It's not eros for romantic or sexual attraction. It's agape which is all about sacrificial, costly, other-centered love. And so when we consider the benchmark that's in the parallel passage in Ephesians 5, the benchmark for this agape, this sacrificial love, is Christ's death on the cross. That he would lay down his life for the church as he bore our sin upon himself. And so when we realize that parallel relationship, we realize this is no small command. God is saying that husbands are to be so sacrificial in their love that they would do anything for their wife, including laying down their life. They would give up their life if it meant protecting their wife. And this is not about mere words, therefore it's based on God's powerful actions before us in the person of his son. This love is so other-centered it means that the husband will always be thinking about his wife's needs and not his own if he understands this command. That's a big call. And there's a second part to it, isn't it? There's one practical test of this. How would we know if a husband is actually living in such a way with such sacrificial love towards his wife? Well, the result will be that he is never harsh with his wife in the second part of verse 19. The word there literally means embittered. And so God's command is a reminder that you know, we're sinners and we will struggle and we will rub up each other up the wrong way and there's always the opportunity for bitter feelings or actions to come in so that harsh words are said or we are sinful in our reaction and our ill temper towards each other. The Apostle Paul is wanting to say here, if the husband is showing sacrificial love to his wife, such bitterness will never take root in their relationship in fact it will never find expression that's a high high calling because we are sinners and we'll be tired and we'll disappoint and let each other down and at those moments there's great opportunity to hurt one another with the things we do and say and so as we apply this first point i want to note that god's blueprint is obviously countercultural to today to today's society but more important than that, it's actually very other-centered in its language. The husband is instructed about how he should treat his wife. The wife is instructed about how she relates to her husband. There's nothing in here about my self-fulfillment or what I get or my privileges. It's very focused on the other person. 
Marriage is a good gift. But the Bible would want to say, as we put all these passages together, that we're not to put marriage on a pedestal. It is not the be-all and end-all, even for those who are married. If we view marriage selfishly as something that just exists to serve our needs, then we're going to be seriously disappointed quickly, aren't we? If we view marriage in that way as the solution to our contentment, to all satisfaction in our life, then it's going to let us down. And worse than that, we've taken our worship away from God and we've placed it onto our spouse or perhaps the institution of marriage itself. The satisfaction, the contentment, the self-fulfillment, the direction that we're seeking, and so often people are seeking for fulfillment in their marriage, will only be found in worship of God. It'll only be found as we come to our Creator. Otherwise, we make marriage an idol in our life. In his book, uh, Married for God, uh, the English author and uh, pastor, uh, Christopher Ashe, uh, writes these very strong words related to this theme. He said, The moment I make my relationship the goal of my life, I doom myself to disappointment. Surprisingly, the key to a good marriage is not to pursue a good marriage, but to pursue the honour of God. We need to replace this selfish model of marriage with one in which we work side by side with our spouse in God's world, serving him rather than forever gazing into each other's eyes. Well, perhaps you find such a quote a little unromantic. He's not suggesting that Christian marriages are loveless, but that they have a higher focus and purpose. Indeed, that is God's design for all people, that we are married, that we might bring honour and glory to him rather than fulfilment selfishly for ourselves. And that brings us to a second answer to our question. Second answer to the question of how we're to live for Christ at home and at work. Firstly, selfish, uh, selfless marriages, not selfish marriages. Secondly, by parenting in a way that leaves a legacy. By parenting in a way that leaves a legacy. Notice again what is stated in verses 20 and 21. As Paul goes on. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Again, very short and sharp, isn't it? Verse 20, um, obey for children, very simple command to say, hard for children to follow. Um, parents see that all the time. I'm sure I was the same with my parents. But the term here is very different to the term submission. Submission is a voluntary choice, as we were speaking about before. Obedience here is talking about absolute obedience, that there's no choice, that the child is called on to respond always to the parents. But notice that it's not just because the parents say so, or even that this is right, which the Bible will say elsewhere. But notice the motivation in this section, because this pleases the Lord. Again, it's not about us. Our marriages are not ultimately about us. They're about God. Our parenting is not about us. It's about pleasing the Lord. And so the child responds to the parent because of their relationship with Christ. The parent should parent the child with the same motivation, as we'll see in a moment. But notice that children are to obey both their father and mother, verse 20. But in verse 21, fathers are specifically singled out. I think the principle here relates to both mum and dad, but um, it is the word for father in the Greek. And specifically, he's given instructions of how not to act towards his children. 
There's a negative command, if you like, and then there's a motivation again for not acting that way. So firstly, the negative command. Fathers are not to embitter or exasperate their children in some of the translations. Fathers are you know, urged to avoid those kind of words and actions which will stir up and provoke and irritate and frustrate the child. One commentator has put it this way to help us get a handle on what Paul intends. Effectively, the apostle is ruling out excessively harsh discipline, unreasonably harsh demands, abuse of authority, constant nagging and condemnation, subjecting a child to humiliation and all forms of gross insensitivity to a child's needs. And why? Why must he avoid acting in that way? Well, not only because they would be sinful responses, but because the result is the child will become discouraged. The motivation is to not cause the child to be discouraged or literally to lose heart. It's really talking about a crushing of a child's spirit here, that they become listless and sullen and despairing because of the way they are treated by their parents. Well, let's think for a moment a little bit further. What are some ways that parents might cause their children uh, to be discouraged? Uh, well, firstly, uh, they could never give them an opportunity to actually take responsibility. Uh, we talk about helicopter parents today, don't we? Always hovering over and never allowing the child to uh, get anything wrong or um, be unprotected. But the danger is that the child is never trusted. They feel like even as they get older, if they're treated that way, that there's never independence, there's never any trust that's given to them. And that can be greatly discouraging for the child. And other ways that parents can exasperate their children by favoritism. That's one that plays out lots of times in the Bible, isn't it? You know, one child seems to be looked after and the other one's having a hard time. Maybe it's done implicitly without intention at times. It's just those unhelpful comparisons that are made. Oh, you know, it's very disappointing that you got that C on your math test. You say, you know your brother Johnny, well, he got an A last week. Well, you're not quite like him, are you? And, and it's very easy for the child to pick up who is in first place and who's coming second and further down. Thirdly, many parents can discourage their children by refusing to listen to them. And that can be at any stage in life, but if the if the parent has never got the time or never really listens to the child or gives them a chance to express themselves, then eventually what's going to happen? Well, then the child will stop communicating to their parents at some point because no one ever listens. There's no point speaking. And so there'll be an estrangement, there'll be a distance in the relationship if that continues. Parents can exasperate their children by setting unrealistic goals, can't they? You know, the child's got to be an astronaut or whatever it might be. And so the, the difficulty is that they can never meet the standard that the parent is looking for. They never receive any approval. They're always falling short. They're never pleasing those who they so desire to please. Parents can discourage, exasperate children by failing to provide basic needs. That's why we have government departments even in Australia like facts, don't we, that you know, are looking for neglect because, sadly, it can happen even in modern-day Australia where just the basic needs of food and care and even love within the family are just not shown to the child. They're just left. That will have a crushing effect as the person grows up. 
Uh, parents can fail to have any standards sometimes. There's just no discipline. There's no boundaries on anything. And that's terrifying, actually, for the child. Or there are some boundaries, but they're wildly inconsistent. So they're applied one day, but not the next. The child doesn't know whether they're coming or going. Uh, many of these things unfold in our society all around us, all the time. And it's having an impact. And finally, parents can <coughs> discourage through constant criticism. The child is always criticised, then they become self-condemning. They feel like uh, you know, they're not good at anything, that they'll never quite do it, but they learn to be critical of everything about it. So they find fault in those around them, not just in themselves. Nothing quite stacks up ever. Now, I know many of you here don't, tonight don't have children, but you may in the future. And so these are things that we need to think about. There may have been experiences that you went through as a child with your parent. And maybe you see the effects of that in one way or another in your own life. Sadly, what's often driving those kind of traits that can creep in is a selfishness from the parents. So often what's happening is the parents are doing things in order to serve themselves. They want their child to look good for them, or they want them to obey or do whatever that will help their day get on. And so it's all about the parent rather than what is good for the child. In her book, The Essence of Family, Kirsten Burkett writes the following. In this self-centered world, we're suffering the loss of relationship, even in families. People crave relationship, companionship, security and love, but these things do not come automatically until we're prepared to give up the creed of devotion to self. They will not be what categorize, uh, characterize our society. Most continue to fight for such things as family and home, but without being prepared to give up their self-worship. Well, is she right? I think Paul would say to us, if that's more and more what our society is like, Christians must give up such attitudes. We don't have a choice. If we're to respond to Christ rightly, we'll have marriages that are selfless, we'll have parenting that are concerned about the child's well-being and them understanding God's grace in Christ. And that will trump any needs that the parents may have or the job they have to run off to. Christians need to give it up and it will reshape their parenting. Now, how do we apply this section? I think we've seen lots of practical things already, but let us push a bit further. I think there's some helpful pointers here. I think in the end what Paul is wanting as he's thinking about discouraging, because it's in an ongoing tense here in the Greek, is he's thinking about the legacy if a child is constantly discouraged and that is going to be the pattern through their life, then that will have lots of ramifications, as I've already mentioned down the track. That's not the kind of legacy that we want to leave. We're wanting a legacy that will be fruitful, that will encourage the child, that will prepare them to be an adjusted adult that will come to appreciate God's love for them, hopefully expressed to them in their children. And the truth of the matter is that we're all going to leave a legacy for our children. Whether it's a good or a bad legacy, there will be a legacy. I mean, my children have got to put up with me going for the Manly Seagulls in the NRL. They've got to put up with me watching cricket and tennis to all hours. They've got to see all these things that I like that they, perhaps they don't care less about. I don't listen to their music when we're driving around. They've got to hear Smooth FM or, you know, or ABC News or something. We may as well be in a parallel universe and they're thinking... Who is this person who's my father? But of course, those kind of legacies are unimportant. It doesn't really matter in the long run whether they like any of the music I ever liked or play the sports that I played. 
But what does matter is that they are built up so that they have a confidence as they go forward in life and above all that they're pointed to Christ. Our hope as parents, Christine and myself, is that we will take every opportunity, grasp everyone to present the gospel to them, not just in words, you know, not just in commands and understanding of scripture, but by being lived out in relationship, that they actually see us do what we're talking about as we relate to one another, as we relate to them. And if we do that, there'll be a wonderful legacy, as there can be in your life, and perhaps already is in your family. In Psalm 78, verses 5 and 6, the psalmist writes this about legacy. He decreed statutes which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children, so the next generation would know them, and even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. You see this picture, it comes up several times in Scripture, that families are God's ordained way to pass on his eternal truths from one generation to the next, not just in words, but lived out in the relationships within the household. I think we saw a wonderful example of this picture of legacy on Friday for you, those of you who are here uh, for Wally Tarasenko's Thanksgiving service. I know some of his grandchildren children are here tonight. But there was testimony after testimony, if you weren't there, from children and grandchildren, and there were great-grandchildren present, of Wally's legacy in their life. And for me, as I would hear it and summarise it now, I'd say his legacy was twofold. One, it was time. He just seemed to have time for everyone. He was present. He was there in their lives. Everyone spoke about how they felt like they had lots of time with their grandfather. But more than that, he would take every opportunity to point them to Jesus. If they had some big gathering, he would sort of give a speech at the end of it and apparently say similar things each time, but always finish with his favourite phrase, which is, God is good. God is good. Everyone knew that was his statement. But of course, every statement has a context, doesn't it? God is good may not be that powerful until you hear the life that he lived. I mean, he was in the Ukraine, and then Stalin came to power, and all the farms were collectivized. They lost their farm, they lost their animals, they lost everything. They fled to Siberia. They lived through winters that were minus 45 degrees. They lived in a house that was a hole in the ground. They survived. They came back to the Ukraine. World War II was starting. Everything was going to be lost again. They ended up in a refugee camp in Germany. And in the midst of all of this, a German soldier witnessed to Wally's father. A German soldier witnessing to someone under Russian control. He came to faith. His family came to faith. While his children, while his grandchildren, great grandchildren, five generations of legacy at this point. That's the kind of legacy that we want. And that's the kind of thing that Paul is calling us to, even in Colossians 3. And it brings us to a third and final answer. Final answer to our question of how to live for Christ at home and at work. We want selfless marriages. We want parenting that leaves a legacy. Thirdly, by working with sincerity for the Lord. So notice again what is recorded in verses 22 to 25. Working with sincerity for the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, 
Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Is the Lord Christ you are serving? Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Well, this uh, third relationship to consider is slaves and masters. And of course, this was still a household concern in the first century in a Roman or a Greco world. Um, nearly every family, at least a wealthy family, um, there would obviously be husband and wife and there were children, but they would always have servants and slaves who were their employees, if you like, of the family that were given tasks by the master of the household. And so we can be a bit thrown off, I think, initially, thinking about how slavery relates to ourselves today. Um, even if your boss is really bad, you probably don't think of him as a slave driver. Um, I hope not, at least. Um, but I think there are principles here in terms of this household connection, the way people to work, um, which relates to our position of serving today in our jobs. We need to realise that Indeed, the slavery that was in the first century, without romanticising it, was somewhat different to the horrible, racially driven uh, slavery that we've seen in the last two or three centuries. In that period, you could um, put yourself into slavery to help pay a debt. Family members or yourself might pay off that debt and you might exit slavery. It was a bit more a part of the economic system. But even so, um, without romanticising it, there was um, certainly opportunities for people to be seen as workers who really committed themselves to what they, the tasks they were given, or those who slackened off and didn't work hard. But you notice the big change that Paul wants to say as we think about the principle that comes from this section for ourselves. The massive change in perspective, if you're a believer here tonight as you go to work, is that you no longer serve your boss or your CEO. You're not trying to make money for the company or impress the shareholders with better profits. You're working for the Lord. And so it's not about your boss or whether he's watching or she's watching or not. It's about your conscience as you serve the living Christ. And so throughout this passage, Paul wants to say things like in verse 22, the result is you will work with sincerity of heart. Frankly, Christians should be the hardest workers, the most greatest integrity of any workers in the workforce because our motivation is heavenward. It's not simply what we're asked. But we'll go above and beyond because we're serving Christ. It's not uh, simply about impressing people uh, when they're watching. Paul makes it very clear that there are those who can be lazy a lot of the time and suddenly are really busy when the boss turns up, uh, really on the job and focused. When somebody's eye is on them, if they're wanting to curry favour, impress or get a raise, well, yes, they're working hard that day, but the rest of the time they're slackening off. We hate that, don't we? If we're in a position where we're working with somebody like that, where there's no integrity, where they're cheating and cutting corners all the time, where they're lazy and leaving work for others, where they only ever do it if somebody's watching. Let me give you an example in a sporting category. I don't know if you saw the article this week online or in the papers, but there's this classic article about a marathon that was run last weekend in China, um, the Shenzhen Half Marathon. But 250 runners in this marathon were caught cheating. 237 caught on camera, hiding behind bushes, taking shortcuts, cutting two or three kilometres off what was the 21-kilometre track so that they could finish in the top 10 or impress. Some people changing bibs halfway and somebody else running the rest of the way. The race. There's crazy stuff happening all across it. 
And apparently this has been happening a lot in races in the last couple of years in China. Only five years ago, there were only uh, 22 marathons each year in the country. There are now over 1,000 marathons. It's become a massive fad, uh, many, many people involved, and it's seen lots of people trying to fight their way to the top and cheat the system. And the response in the local paper about these people that were caught red-handed was this, we deeply regret the violations that occurred during the event. Marathon running is not simply exercise. It is a metaphor for life, and every runner should be responsible. They went on to say, you need to respect the marathon and respect the sporting spirit. It is deeply shameful what is happening. Don't run and forget why you run. And on and on it goes. Well, it's interesting. Um, in some of the bigger marathons in the last two years, they've increased uh, the use of facial recognition. Uh, in some of the marathons, before you start in Beijing or some of the other places, there's so much cheating going on that they were trying to eradicate it by going to lots of technology to help out. Now, it's hard not to smile and laugh at that kind of problem, and I'm not picking on the Chinese. This is, just shows the human heart wherever you go around the world. The problem is we can laugh at something like that and the cheating that's going on, and then go to work tomorrow and be doing our personal work in work time. Or we can go to work tomorrow and then leave an hour early because the boss has already left and so no one will see, so we're cutting out some time. Or we can go to work tomorrow and we're, um, you know, we're getting bored with what we're doing and so our screen is under some, some other thing that we're surfing on the net or some game we're playing and it only clicks back onto what we're doing because somebody's walked into the room. That's terrible, isn't it, if that kind of thing is happening? That's not what God is calling us to. And so the question we've got to consider at that point is how we're living. How we're living, regardless of who our boss is or what is required of us. Yes, there is um, something to consider. If you're in charge of other people, if you're the boss, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, you need to be right and fair in your treatment of your employees as well. There's a flip side to this. I guess often people feel like they're hard done by by their boss. I used to work for an engineering firm for about eight years and I was very blessed to have a Christian boss. And he was right and fair most of the time and I was very thankful for that. But there were moments when I felt pressured to do more than was possible and it's a temptation then to cut corners. I can't do all these things in this time. But that's where integrity comes in. Not when it's easy, but at the hard moment. Integrity comes in too where clients are trying to push us to get outcomes they want rather than to act rightly. We used to prepare reports for the Land Environment Court and I'd get calls by the client saying, well, we've got your draft report, but we don't like what you said in this paragraph. Can you just change it up? We'll send you what we'd like to see in there. And say, no, <laughs> that's why I've written the report that's going to court. I've got to stand and testify to this. I'm not paid by you to give you what you want. And I was very thankful at that point that I had a Christian boss who would say, no, we do what is right. Yes, our workplaces can be complex. It's not always simple to live with integrity as we serve. But we have to know that we're serving God and we're not serving our manager. That one day, verse 25, we'll have to give an account for everything we've done, not before our boss, but before the boss who will know everything that has been done and said. Well, we began by asking the question, how are we to live for Christ at home and at work? And we've seen three points that have come through in this passage. Three ways we can do that. Firstly, 
We need to pursue selfless marriages. If you're already married here tonight, there's a clear way forward for you in your marriage. We need to keep working at these things. If you're not married yet, even better. You've got an opportunity to think hard about what your marriage should look like if God brings you to that state. That it might be sacrificial, that it might be about serving the other and not about pleasing myself. Secondly, with our parenting, we're wanting to parent in a way that leaves a legacy. Um, Just like our marriages, our parenting is not about us, but it's about God. And that should be reflected in the way we respond to people. It's about relationships that honour the Lord. And finally, we do so with regard to our work by working with sincerity. I hope you've seen as we look through each of these, the problem that we have is really our selfishness. Our sinfulness leads to putting us in the front of the picture all the time and God somewhere in the background. It's like the selfie that is ubiquitous now. And Jesus is in the background, but we've all crowded and got in the front and we can hardly see him. He's just drifted into the back because it's not about him anymore. It's all about me. And so my marriage is what I'm going to get out of it. My parenting is how my kids make me look good. My work is all about so that I might get ahead and that people might respect or be impressed by me. And God says, no, it's not about you. You're my creature and you're here to glorify your creator. And at any point that you don't, you've missed what I'm saying. Well, let's pray that this week... Uh, God will help us to live in a way in our households, in our workplaces that honours him, that puts him first in all that we do and say. Will you join me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the clarity of your word on these topics of marriage and parenting and work. Lord, we acknowledge that There is so much room for wrong motivations to come in, for mistreatment of others, for selfish, self-serving, self-fulfilling practices to creep in. Lord, help us to see uh, that we are here to serve you, that we live to honour you, and that that be expressed in all such relationships, particularly in those that are closest to us. Lord, we pray that you might help us by your spirit. Change us and mould us, we pray, to honour you rightly. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.